So let's go back to Razak since <laughs> we talk about Razak, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yep. so we have talked about Marxism. We have talked about China investment here in Malaysia. Would you say that there is actually a parallel, a similarity between two Razaks here? Where initially, Tun Abdul Razak, he has always been adopting that policy of looking to China. So he even sent Tunku Dr. Ismail to China. At that time, they were just seeking for some political stability because British pulled out from Suez Canal. Then Nixon disengaged from Southeast Asia. So therefore, there is always that, that need to look for a superpower. So I think at that time, Malaysia has recognized the superpower of China. No. So now going to Najib, during his time, I would say China investment in Malaysia has flourished one of the most also. So maybe is there any parallel here? Yeah, I guess it's also that during Tun Razak time, he was pushing for international countries to, to recognize China as under Mao. You know, I think 1970s, China was still under Mao Zedong, right? Yeah, and it's, it's quite hard to imagine because we know what sort of totalitarian type of mm-hmm. ways Mao was ruling and that for the ex-Prime Minister Tun Razak to send a team there and recognizing, you know, trying to push the world to recognize China as one of the superpower, not just one of the nation, but one of the superpower in the world. And then now you see that with the ex-Prime Minister Najib Tun Razak doing the same and, and just, just opening doors and selling maybe lands, mm-hmm. Malaysia lands to China corporates. Say it's China corporates, but it's really Chinese government, you know, for the one belt, one road, I don't know what's the Malaysia over sentiment. I mean, are we happy with Malaysia land being sold to China like this? And and now you, you look at a lot of these projects. I mean, the one in Johor got stranded. Giving credit to Mahathir, he was one of the one after the last election in 2018 to come out and say, hey, you know, we are just a small country. We cannot afford this type of big contract with China. And we have to start to pull out and reassess all this agreement with Chinese gov- you know, the Chinese corporate and the Chinese government. Because many of these projects, the Chinese corporate, the company that's involved, they bring in their material. They bring in their workers. Basically, all the things that they use to build the road and things like that, it doesn't help the local economy. What do we get as a country from this type of deal? And I'm quite sure, you know, behind all this deal, there will be some other elite who is gaining, you know, money from all this type of contract. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about China and how when Pakatan came about, Mahathir was sort of like just ringing the bell of caution because comparing the two Razat, when two Razat pivoted to China, I mean, now, of course, with the hindsight of history, so many nations wanted to align with China because they didn't want to align with U.S. That's their motivation. But what many don't realize is that when you align with a regime that does not respect the rule of law, and many people will disagree, say, oh, China has a rule of law, but when you look at the the Belt and Road, and so many nations are suffering because China doesn't play by the normal rule. Now, of course, you know, supporters of CCP and Chinese regime, they always say, oh, but the Western nations have suppressed them and things like that. We're not saying that the Western nations are angels by any means, but at the very least, the Westminster system provides the rule of law. You know, in China, there's no rule of law. You know you can get shot anytime. If government doesn't like what you're doing, they can just take over your business. Correct. Look at Jack Ma. Yeah. I mean, overnight, you just... Mm. I mean, what you earn over the years is... It's, it's like Thanos, you know, one flip yeah. of finger, everything is gone. Yeah. So, so it's interesting that even in Malaysia, especially during Dr. Mahathir's first reign, 
we do not have rule of law also because once he taken out the judiciary in the 80s, then oppressive lala and those kind of thing, then we don't have a rule of law. So that is one of the reasons I feel that people are now, hey, maybe the judiciary is independent because an elite like Najib could be sent to prison, an elite like Rosma and maybe Zahid soon. I don't know. I get a feeling that people, some people, of course, they, they are just rejoicing that tyrants are being put behind bars. But there's another dimension which I hope will be a trend to, to come is that we are finally going back to an independent judiciary. How independent remains to be seen. But at least now we can say there is a rule of law. Correct. Because mm-hmm. Westminster system, what is so special, even the king is subjected to judiciary mm-hmm. and parliament. And that's the whole framework of the three separation of power. When you put power in one hand, so in China, it is really the, the Politburo, the CCP, whatever they decide is law. But th- that's going to create imbalance because whenever you have a few ungodly people, evil people, then they just do whatever they want. So that's the balance that I'm hoping will be a new dawn in Malaysia. Yeah, so it's quite interesting with the latest judiciary progress in Malaysia. We are cautiously optimistic that, you know, increasingly, hopefully, there will be more decoupling of this judicial branch from the executive branch. And it should be that way, that there will be a separation of power. The judiciary has to be independent. Yep, since we talk about judiciary and we talk about constitution, let's go a little bit back into where we see breaches again. There is this Rukun Nagara that has been introduced during the time of Dum Adurazza as well. In Rukun Nagara, we know that the second priority is actually Kasutiaan Kabadal Raja Tanagara. Would you say that what has happened in a nation is because of the action of the people? Because we continuously vote in the same government, knowing how bad they were, and then we still vote in the same group of people. It's just like, oh, change of face, change of some slogan. And then we vote in this same group of people. But we also, at the same time, we really uphold the Malay supremacy knowingly, unknowingly, regardless of races. Bearing in mind that this Rukun Nagara is actually being put on the same par, unequivocal term upon the Malaysian constitution, and the provision will apply without terms and could be broken unilaterally. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about the Rukun Nagara because remember again, going back to Tom Hadir's reign, right? And he had all those fights with the royal. I mean, we hear stories about the Johor royal family stories about how you know you have assaults even murder and people are shooting i remember i was maybe we were primary school or secondary school i think it was during sultan azlan shah's time so remember sultan azlan shah himself was lord president so when mahadir sort of say look no one is above law we, we need to hold the royalty in check i remember initially azlan shah was like okay that, that's a good thing but then when he went to the council of rulers he also was against it but i guess in the end mahadir just push his way so that's one of the things now of course it, it wasn't that bad for them because they established a court that can do hearing for royalty and then I think there are three or five judges and the majority will still be appointed by Argon so it's like almost none of the major royalty figure will be convicted but it's like a loss of faith it's like their status as immune from criminal persecution is now no more so I think that's all Mahathir tried to do just to show you that hey you are not above the constitution we are a constitutional monarchy. So, so that's why the whole Rukun Nagara about loyalty to the royal institution, 
it's just wrong. How can it be above constitution? It cannot be. We are a constitutional monarchy. That's how it should be. So that's why in recent time, especially in 2018, remember when Pakatan won, they put in our candidate is Mahadeh and Agon say, I want to talk to Wang Aziza. So it's like, hey, it's not even your job to do that. You, you are supposed to hear the person with the largest commands of the member of parliament and accept their candidate. Then of course, the para constitutional crisis and then emergency, emergency with, with Mohidin. So people are like, hey, you, you know, how should we be dealing with the royal institution? That, that's a sensitive issue in, in Malaysia. I guess since we are a constitutional monarchy, we should talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine Queen Elizabeth doing all this thing in United Kingdom. I think there'll be a big revolt <laughs> from, from the citizen. Yeah, I mean, when you hear how she described her role and she took it very seriously, and which is really to uphold the constitution. Now, of course, Britain had, you know, in terms of the parliament restricting the monarch, they have at least 500 years of history. So it's very well developed what the sovereign can or cannot do. So Queen Elizabeth, of course, world famous for adhering to the rules. Yeah. And even when it comes to her own family member, she will take no exception. So even remember her husband, Prince Philip, wanted certain kind of things and she will not have it if it is against the rule and constitution. So that's the thing. I guess we're not maturing democracy, but I just felt like, look, we, we don't have a president. We don't have someone that is above prime minister. We, we shouldn't give the, the monarchy that kind of power. That the kind of power not prescribed by the constitution. But of course, I think there are certain parts about uh, appointments. You know, what does it mean by Agon can appoint with the advice of prime minister? You know, if prime minister advised, can the Agon say no? So these are the kind of thing that maybe I feel our judiciary will need to revisit. It will be interesting because in normal Westminster system, advised by prime minister, meaning when prime minister advised, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> That, that is the limitation yeah, of the crown. Yeah. I think whoever that take the crown, they are made to understand that that is that limitation. I just kind of Google and now, uh, I mean, this is last year's news, okay, 9 of August 2021. I won't mention who, but one of the senior royalty just say, a, a quote, he say, the royal institution must be upheld and maintained because it is one of the last check and balance for people and country. <laughs> well, I, I mean, to be fair, I would say our constitution it's a big, maybe not so clear about that. I mean, the, the, the UK constitution, of course, their rule of law, their, their common law, is very, very much established what the, the queen or king can do. But whereas here, we have a lot of, I guess in the past, we, we never have the check and balances. We, we kind of allowed the alliances, Barisan National to rule 50, 60 years unchecked. Only since 2008, we have a proper opposition. So you think about it, we only have 15 years of proper opposition. So we can't be expecting something that is really groundbreaking or advanced. Yeah. And of course, when you think about the check and balance, like the American style, I don't think our people can take it. Who wants to vote five to seven times every election cycle? People are just too lazy for that. So we're not looking for that, but we're looking for a bit more check and balance, I guess. Yeah. And I think with COVID, right, and, and what, what's happening with not just Malaysia economy, I think global, you know, the economy downturn, you get the sentiment that, you know, people are saying that how government is using money even with the maintenance of the royal family you know I, I mean even if you talk to you know I was just talking to some of my colleagues across the races and they are like saying you know how much does it take to, to maintain so many royal families you know these are taxpayer money 
You see, like, if we go back to the British system, because now that, that's the whole debate and, and rage now. It's like Prince Charles is expected to be the next monarch. And there, there was a lot of report that he wants to trim down working royal. Yep. And, and these people are really working ones. And they'll be like doing official engagement, anything from 200 to 300 engagement per year. They are really working, representing the crown. And by the way, you, you know, the first lines to the throne, that means you are the crown prince they have a special estate one. It's not, it doesn't belong to, to the government. It's something that was established many, many years ago and it, it's worth billions, you know. So, so that's how Charles has a few hundred millions that he can spend. But, but that's not taxpayers' money. That's something established by his forefather. So, so the, the whole discussion about how much the government is paying, how much the state government is paying, I think people deserve to, to see this because at the end of the day, it's taxpayers' money, right? Um, <laughs> But of course, in the past, it's like, hey, this is a very sensitive issue. We better don't talk about it. But we are at a time where we, everyone is like having to sacrifice. Everyone is having not quite enough with, with global turmoil, with COVID, with lack of growth, weakening currency. I don't think people will say no to an <laughs> audit. Um, yeah. yeah. But it's sensitive. I, I know it's sensitive. Again, it, it's really the, the time of... The, the identity because one of the things about the royal family under constitution they are the custodians of the national religion mm. so that really puts them in a very very special position so yeah I mean they, they should be paid for what they do but we're, we're not saying they shouldn't be paid we're saying how much and, and some of the stake uh, monarch they are very rich you know because they own their own land like, like Johor royal family has tons of personal land these are not land given by government to progress as a nation, we need to talk about this, right, at some point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you look at Malaysia and it's interesting because talking about Malaysia being in Southeast Asia, increasingly we want to ask how competitive we are as a nation in this region. You talk about northern area, you talk about even a country that is with communism that is still ruling like Vietnam. You know, even throughout COVID, seemingly the economy is not so badly affected. Mm. Uh, you talk about Thailand, you know, the tourism, they, they open up their tourism quite earlier on. Talk about down south Singapore. I mean, the currency and our exchange rate is now it's just pathetic for Malaysia. I mean, how competitive has, have we become? Even the Indonesia, would it be a day where we will stop taking Indonesian worker and Indonesian made? I mean, countries like that are really becoming more and more competitive. Is it because of taking Indonesia as an example that now the ruling party is doing a good job and they have, I, I don't know, more transparency, less government interference or, or what, what is happening in this region and are we you know we, we, Malaysia we were known as one of the the strong tiger you know in this region and we were talking about 30-40 years ago but now I can't say you know th this is who we are now and what can we do to because we have we have resources you know we have land we have oil we have sea you know, we should be prosperous and yet we are not seeing that manifesting here in this region and I would say a lot of this is because of that systemic corruption that's involved mm -hmm. and that, that is with AMNO, you know, running the country for the past uh, until now, you know, and in, in working with that, I, I would say that some of the, I, I don't know, the royal family, you know, they, they, they are the beneficial also from, from this type of system and I, I would say, you know, the systemic corruption to what extent? How bad the country should be before there's awakening and say we want a change? Because I believe across the races, 
I'm quite sure people are sick of this, you know, sick of, sick of that type of systemic corruption and, and say that, you know, we, we, we should be rich because we have resources, we, have, we are rich in resources. Do you want to think about reforming and causing the nations to realise its real potential and destiny? And I think it's really this, that people, they, they may not know what they want and they may not know what the nation is capable of. Because when you talk to ordinary people and you're like telling them, hey, there's a danger or we're losing competition, and people kind of can feel that generally, but they can't sort of put a very clear finger to it. They'll be like, in our mind, oh, Philippines are still more corrupted than us, uh, Indonesia more corrupted than us. But of course, not, not many are realizing that Indonesia, Vietnam are becoming more and more competitive. You know, think about it. What, what is our competitive advantage? We, we have one of the best legal system in the world. We started off with very high level of English competency. All those are eroding already. Yeah, that's then, right. Then, of course, you talk, about, you talk about China. China likes to work in Malaysia. I guess it's the temperament, the mood, the language, which they won't get in Philippines, Thailand, or Indonesia. So because we have a sizable... Mandarin speaking people who, who understand and, and by the way a lot of the China entity they operate out of Hong Kong so we understand the Hong Kong Commonwealth legal system also it's, it's not very complicated for us but Indonesia is a different legal system you know more, more related to the Dutch the French system so there are many competitive advantage but it's eroding but I still feel like we are not at the major tipping point, is it tipping point will be a point of no return for one generation. I, I don't believe Malaysia is at that stage yet, but we have to kind of wake up and get people to, to realize, you know, it's a downhill kind of thing. We haven't reached the end. It is still time to stop this train wreck, <laughs> if I can use the word. And that's how, that's why some people are like, hey, when Najib was around, our economy was good. You know, some people start to justify that. So it goes back to the discussion. Do you want a tyrant? Okay, I, actually, he's not a tyrant. He, he's just a thief, okay? So do you want a thief who can manage the economy well? So yeah, maybe we get a profit of $7 uh, dollar per, per 20 ringgit investment and then he will take two. Or do you want someone who is very honest but can only earn three ringgit? So, so that's a discussion and... Uh, I feel like you know if we're even entertaining having a crook as our leader, then then our foundation is wrong already. We we won't be able to get out from this this rut. You know, I've spoken to people, educated people, reasonable people, and, and they feel like it's wrong to persecute Najib. Yeah, some people even say nine hundred seventy million for the the fine to Rosma is <laughs> too too much. <laughs> Actually, I feel so also. <laughs> it, it is a lot, but it's like given. I guess it's symbolic to the people. Yeah, I mean, probably, it, I mean, of course, the law say you can find five times. Uh, the whole deal costs 180 plus million, but her own commission is actually less than 2 million, I think. I think this will be argued out in court. 900 over plus million, if you can't pay, then it's 30 years more sentence. For, for someone who is 70 years old, it's a death sentence, I would say. So I can understand the outrage. So we, we shall see. I, I, I predict it will be reduced to maybe 50 million in exchange for another additional five years. I think that will be more reasonable because 10 plus 5, 15 for 70-year-old, it's a pretty long sentence already, I'll say. 
But probably people, it's the impression that he gave to the public, you know, with all the handbags and yeah, <laughs> so the watches. It's like you know this. It's this not is a rich, million, uh, <laughs> This is a rich lady. <laughs> actually, a lot of people don't realize that hey, you know, Najib's most serious case is not even being heard. You know, the, the, the SRC one is the is the least serious one. You know, yep. tip so, of the iceberg. Yeah, so so that's why the whole discussion about getting a pardon is like. But but now you don't hear it anymore, right? Because I think Zahid mentioned that it's really for his own skin or so, you know? So so I'm quite impressed that after the first few days, you don't hear much from the Najib's family anymore for a while. Maybe they knew it's futile to keep talking about this. Yeah, but, but it goes back to, to the whole thing, you know? Do we want a crook who can manage the economy? Or we'd rather have... But but it's but but it's true, you know. You know, since uh, PN took over and then with Sabri, we have not been doing very well in terms of the economy, in terms of the management, in terms of confidence. Yeah, they seem to have regressed and getting more foreign investment pulled out from Malaysia. Mm. Mm. The the impression people get is that when they are trying to ask, I mean, from pandemic response to investment to policy. Every time they want to get some clarification, it's like there's no clarification. So it's almost like maybe we are too used to strongman, centralized, big government system, and all of a sudden, when you don't have... Because AMNO has been pretty shaken since 2018. Barisan National has been shaken. So when you don't have the strongman kind of thing, maybe it's the, the, the phase we have to grow, you know, in terms of, hey, let's not rely on big government... But in the meantime, maybe there'll be a lot of screw up. Maybe there'll be some uh, neglect in certain area. But, but this is how we can grow as a nation if we want to uh, move away from relying on the government all the time. Yeah. I mean, w- would this be a start of a more self-governing? Would mm. it be a start of a more t- decentralization? It's interesting. We were just discussing before the recording, right? Right at 2018, after the change of government, so there was a, a, a major law conference. Okay, so I remember Liu Qingdong was there. He was doing a case study on FDR, like, you know, you know, like I, I think that's his economic aspiration for Malaysia. But there was a Singapore National University professor. I can't remember his name, but he was because at that time they were talking about there was a senator from Sarawak, and they were talking about you know Sarawak Sabah wants their right so so he was just saying hey, look it's not just Sabah and Sarawak want more right but every state want more right from the federal because the federal just took so much so you see with Selangor government you see with Penang government over land over water over energy there's a lot of tussle because the constitution is like so one-sided to the federal but the state government always have one final trump card they control the land so they don't want to give the land it can be a perpetual fight so, so you get you get more organized state government like Penang and, and Selangor. So it's not just Sabah and Sarawak wanting those rights, but every other state. I mean, Johor always say, right, they, they want to secede from, I mean, that, that's Johor Sultan, but it, I think it's his own wishful thinking. Yeah, that's quite interesting because I always yeah. thought that only Sabah, Sarawak, especially Sarawak, I mean, I mean, with the last state election, you get this type of Sarawak for, for Sarawakian, as uh, type of sentiment is really increasing seemingly yeah. in, in Sarawak. I always thought it's just a Sarawak thing, not so much other parts of Malaysia. Mm. So that is something... But some, Johor, something I think it's just, it's just a royal family wanting yeah. to save his own skin. Uh. But general population in West Malaysia, I, I don't hear this kind of sentiment. That's right. Yeah. I, I would say going forward, you know, you'll be 
quite interesting coming election that if you see, I mean, looking back at what one of the guest speaker last time, Ram, was saying that one of the, maybe the good thing that, that really happened over the past four years or so is that we don't have a strong man. You know, mm. you, you have a period of time where you change <laughs> prime minister like uh, about three times and the type of period where you have a strong pharaoh-like type of figure, uh, that, that, that era is gone. Yeah, uh, it's like we don't have strong men anymore and we even broken the ceiling. It's like the president of the largest political party is no longer necessarily a prime minister candidate. Then the, the highest elite is no longer immune from criminal persecution. So we, we have broken a few ceilings the last few years. You see, breaking the ceiling itself doesn't solve the problem, but it brings us to a place where we as a nation can decide what kind of direction, for better or for the worse. Because sometimes people think, hey, put Najib in prison is good. No, it, it, it only kind of reframe the whole discussion. The people still need to decide what kind of system, what kind of government. So, so that's why going back to, to the COVID discussion that we did so many uh, episodes, it's, it, it's still a bit concerning that people don't realise they are giving out their rights, they are giving out their right to decide what kind of government they want. And most people just couldn't care or, or cannot appreciate that, hey, they actually have a, have a huge say in terms of who gets to have power. Yeah, talking about less strongmen, that we don't really have too many strongmen now, that it's, it's less obvious, but we also don't have a dominant party that we could vote for. So since we are going into election cycle soon, let's sort of end with this. Mm -hmm. What is your prophetic outlook concerning the upcoming election? How could people vote for a reformation in Malaysia? How could people vote for the purpose of nation building in Malaysia? So we have talked so much about moving away from federalism, moving away from big government, centralized government. But how do people begin to move towards self-governance? I guess my political perspective has changed a bit since 2018 because I can't help but to think that if we are still under PH with PKR and DAP and if they are the running government now, I think the control, the measures that they are going to impose during this whole time, I'm afraid is going to be probably more totalitarian. I mean, there's no way for us to, to say. Just by reading some of the social media posts, posted by some of the political leaders and things like that, it has caused me to rethink my decision. But I think going forward next year, I, I mean, personally, even for me, for myself, I would say that, number one, I would not work for political leaders that works for a party that is going to continue to maintain this type of systemic corruption. I mean, that, that is the priority that I want the country to be free of this type of systemic corruption. I know it's going to take some time. And number two, I would say that sometimes it's a vote by exclusion. <laughs> that that if, if I would just look at this and I say, okay, you know, this, this candidate uh, might not be the candidate that is ideal to my choice, but, you know, I will just eliminate this, this and this, and I think I will just vote for this. But I feel it's going to be a transition time for the country. I feel the struggle going not the struggle, but the challenge going ahead is going to be the fight for liberty and freedom, the fight for personal liberty and freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, even in this part of the world. I feel that is going to be a challenge, yeah, because uh, it is good that now we see that you know the Najib case is is 
hopefully a closure for now, you know, some sort of closure for now, and that we can see more independence for the judiciary system. And we see there's no, no one strong man that's holding the power, though there's systemic corruption that's going on. But I feel with the next election, if the voters chose right, I would say there will be more, hopefully more transparency in this region. I, I, I think the next two to three years, that's what we need. We need more transparency. But I feel it's a transition period because after that, the, the, the challenge would be that the fight against this type of totalitarian sort of control. But, you know, having to say that, I have not seen that it's a voice from any party that is you know, that is speaking out against this type of control. And I would say that awakening among the leaders are not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we have been saying for a few times already, just looking at the COVID response. And in some ways, if Pakatan had been government, we probably would be looking very similar policies to New Zealand and Australia, which we have said a few times, we put on record here, that it's going to be worse than what PN had done. Yeah. I really think so. But that being said, remember the last episode we, we, we talked about this and we say, look, no, I'm no at any cost. So, so I agree with what Lanshi was saying that, look, we're not going to support any party that has any link with systemic corruption. So that means all the Barisan National Component Party definitely cannot vote for them. And then, of course, what about the, 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 the alternative, you know? Um, you, you see, prior to Najib's putting into prison, remember they were saying that if a general election is called, Amno is going to win for sure. But I somehow just felt like that sentiment has shifted quite a bit uh, with Najib's convictions. And even Amno, I mean, they, they are still confident, but maybe not as bullish as they should be. And you think about it, they shouldn't be so confident. It, is, it defies logic, you see. The thieves continue to be confident that they'll be voted in. And if you look at even the state election in Malacca, in Sabah, in Sarawak, and in Johor, Amno didn't win big. It's really that there is the splitting of vote by PN and Pakatan. Now, of course, what, what can be done is that Pakatan and PN are not going to work together. No way. After Sheraton move, it's like people are like, die, die also cannot work together. So, so that's fine. That, that's a political reality. So I, I do feel like, it, like, I agree with what Lan was saying. Look, we, I think we are at a time where the whole issue of what our nation is going to be like in the next 10, 20, 30 years is being framed out at this stage. Yes, we have to get rid of systemic corruptions, but are we going to replace them with something as bad or something better? So it's like, you know, after World War II, so many parties are like, okay, we need to get rid of communists, but once they get rid of communists, they become totalitarian. It's like A is no different from B. You know, in Malaysia, the the entry level to political party is just so difficult. Even Muda tried to get registered. Slightly easier, you need to have some political connection, but I, I really feel like maybe we will get some of the parties that, that represent different value and we shouldn't be afraid of, you know, people always say, look, if you have a third force or fourth force, you are splitting the party, you are giving uh, the, the Barisan National or AMNO the victory. I, I, I don't quite agree with that because we had to go through this cycle uh, until people realize, hey, you have to reject systemic corruption, otherwise you live by it. So if Amnos becomes the government, then it is because the voters deserve that kind of government. So right. the outlook, I, I would say, look, no nothing has changed for me uh, in terms of voting because 
yeah, you have to look at what's in front of you, certain parties you can't support at all. Um, you know, past, we can't support at all, you know, based on the, the, the kind of bullshit they're putting on, week in, week out. So sometimes, yeah, we may have to pay a price for one cycle, but I really believe there is that opportunity that people, you know, some political parties, they, they have a tremendous opportunity to promote freedom and liberty, to promote uh, the ability for ordinary Malaysians to pursue happiness because that's, that's what we want at the end of the day. We, we don't want to have all kind of uh, big government, things like that, but we want the basic right, the basic foundation. But who can give that to us? Whether that requires entire new generation, I, I hope not. I, I hope we're going to be able to see some meaningful changes because Malaysia's potential has been kept so long by systemic corruption. We, we shouldn't allow that to happen because we think about you know, we are, we, we, all of us here, we are not that young anymore. You know, we are, we are not like the, the young generation. We're almost like the next generation. But yeah, I mean, you think about those young people, the, the Z generation, those in high school and primary school today, if we don't fight for the structure now, they will see a nation that's even maybe worse than what we are experiencing now. Right. I really like what Lan Shi mentioned about transitional time for Malaysia. This really just reminds me of President Trump's famous slogan of draining the swamp. <laughs> so I think we are really, really at that period of just draining out the swamp yep. where people beginning to appreciate personal liberty. I think that is the very core value that every person needs to have because at the end of the day, how we want to have freedom, liberty in Malaysia, that will determine how we vote for Malaysia. So, so that really is very, very encouraging to hear. So I think we are not at like really, really bleak sort of moment in <laughs> Malaysia. There is still hope for Malaysia. So that is it for today. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye.